Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Lori Kilmartin is here, and she is the New York Times best-selling author of Shitty Moms. Did you guys read Shitty Moms? An amazing book. And now today she's talking about dad, so this is going to be great. Uh, she's also um, an Emmy-nominated writer for Conan, and she has a fine podcast with her friend Jackie Cation. It's called The Jackie and Lori Show, so don't miss that yet. Super fun. Subscribe to that podcast. And Lori has also appeared as a stand-up comedian on Conan, Last Comic Standing, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and Comedy Central. So she's just done a lot of stuff, so we're super happy she's here. Um, but before she comes on, I wanted to mention that here at Skylight, we have something called a Friends with Benefits Club. No, not like that. Sure, you're bad. Friends with Benefits, if you buy this uh, card for $25 a year, you'll get 10% off everything in the store and also 20% off all best-selling books and also event books. So if you are a member of FWB tonight, your book would be 20% off. So that's how that goes. Uh, also tonight, when Lori's done speaking, of course, we'll do a Q&A. And then when we wrap that up, I will move the podium away and the microphone and set up a table here. And if you'd like to have your book signed, that would be great. And we'll have you guys line up here against this bookshelf. I'll be here helping you out. Buy the book first, if you would. It's in the front of the store. And then come on back. You can also find Skylight Books on Twitter at Skylight Books. And you can also find our guest on Twitter at AnyLori16. You can do all those things right now if you want. Yes. Then turn your phone off. That'd be great. Yeah, that's how it works. Anyway, you guys, we're super glad you're here. And so now, without any further ado, please put your hands together for Lori Kilmartin. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for coming by today. Um, okay, I'm just going to read from uh, this book. Hello, Darlene. Uh, we have some Jackie and Lori fans here. Um, it's about my dad's uh, 10 days in hospice. He had uh, lung cancer. And uh, so that was a lot of fun for us. And uh, <laughs> so uh, part of this book is dirty and part of it's not. And uh, I'll try to go back and forth so I you know, can keep you interested. Um, here's the intro, part of the intro. I've been aware of death for a long time. I cried when death took Bambi's mom and cheered when it took Jaws. I was 12 when death took one grand grandparent and groaned when it came for another. And yet, part of me always believed that my dad would be alive, that my dad was death-proof, that he and I would keep chugging along, him th always 35 years older than me, me 60, dad 95, me 70, dad 105, me 80, dad the oldest man in the world. This really seemed like a viable option. Then that thing that happened to everyone happened to me. My dad died. If we're lucky, our nuclear family expands for a few decades. Siblings get married, bringing in-laws and kids. Siblings get remarried, bringing new in-laws and stepkids. Holidays turn into huge affairs. Family photos are standing room only, with our parents sitting proudly in the center. Then one day, the contraction begins. Nature, or God, brings out the axe and starts chopping off the oldest branches of our family tree. That's the best case scenario, Every di everyone dying in the excuse me, reverse order that they were born. This book is not about a young death or a tragic death. 
Those waters are too deep. This book is about old people dying, as expected, of old people causes. Specifically, it's about cancer, hospice, funerals, grief, well-meaning friends, and how shocking it is to be parentless for the first time at 48. This book answers questions like, are there rules when it comes to administering morphine? Yes, the sick person gets the most, the family gets the rest. Uh, do my friends really care that my 88-year-old mother died? Yes, for about 20 minutes. Then they think, well, she had a nice long life and hope that you never bring it up again. Can I shame my dying loved one into living longer? Absolutely. On the eighth day of Tad's dad's 10 days in hospice, I introduced my then boyfriend, who was African-American, to dad. After the boyfriend left, I said, dad, if you die today, people will think that you're racist. Dad laughed and lived two more days. And I credit my ex for that. Is it okay to be attracted to the soldier who plays taps at your dad's funeral? Yes, while working through grief, you can count on your genitals to lead the way. While watching TV, my dying loved one said, I like this show, then slipped into unconsciousness. Can I rouse him so his last words are more eloquent? Please don't. Disappointment awaits. The next thing out of your, his mouth could be, who are you? Quotable last words are rare. Dying people have enough on their plate. We shouldn't pressure them to be profound. Besides, I like this show. May have been a comment on his life and not Judge Joe Brown. Um, okay. All right, now I'm going to come into a couple chances. There's, you know, obviously I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm just trying to get to the punchy shit. Um, so this is a section called To the Dying Reader. Are you an old man with daughters? Please shred your porn. <laughs> Hello, old man. I hope you're not afraid of heights, because after you die, your devastated daughter is going to place you on a pedestal 25 embellished stories high. Each story will glorify crusty old you in a way that will embarrass a pharaoh. Your filthy dog-walking jacket will be taken off the rusty nail where it hung in the garage and placed under museum glass. Every so often, she'll she will remove it and bury her face in its folds just to feel close to you. Please do not let this woman find your porn. Dads, we daughters are surrounded by men who watch porn all the time. At work, in the car, until the flight attendant orders them to stop. These are the men's, men we date, tolerate, and sometimes marry. As we wax our vaginas and bleach our anuses to please this ruined generation, we cling to the hope that at least my dad wasn't like that. Let us have this. We want to idolize you if you don't mind. You're dead. We won't be able to introduce you to our new spouses or our new children. All we have left are stories to tell. We're like Italian-Americans with Christopher Columbus. We'll overlook a million sins so we can throw our parade. Your death day will be a sad holiday for us, and we want to think about you, but from the waist up. If you are too weak to dispose of it, leave it in a place where your son will find it. If you have a son, trust me, he has been aroused by some sick shit and he feels guilty. He will be grateful to discover that his old man was also a perv. He can take comfort in the fact that his disgusting fantasies, like his eye color, are genetic. Your son is a second, third, perhaps even fourth generation degenerate, and it's okay for him to know that. One day he will log on to Ancestry.com and see that he's descended from a long line of men who liked gangbangs. If you don't have a son, how about a son-in-law? You gave your daughter away to him. He feels even worse about his porn. No son-in-law, no problem. Time for TaskRabbit. 
TestRabbit is like Uber for chores. Open the app and search for handyman services. Then let Harry S. be your son for the day. When he arrives 15 minutes later, oh boy, this is already sounding like a porn movie. Tell him five stars if he gets rid of everything. Is there anything handier than a man who removes incriminating evidence and doesn't know your last name? Hospice, a medical term that means here you do it. My understanding of hospice was hospice nurses are like angels and that they are patient, loving, and kind. I was sort of right. Dad's hospice nurses were like angels and that we never saw them and couldn't confirm they existed. <laughs> well, we did spot a nurse on day one of hospice. I have videotape of a woman in dark red scrubs walk, uh, walking us through paperwork. I didn't get her name, but I assumed I would get it the next day when she returned. Ha, 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 ha. When a person goes into hospice, the family signs a contract promising that when their loved one starts to die, they will not call an ambulance that will bring them to the ER. It is rough stuff. Well, I would be angry later in the week. In retrospect, that woman was pretty open about not wanting to see or hear from us again. We could have a dad in a hospice center, but it seemed unnecessary. My parents' house was as poorly decorated as a medical facility, and it was free. At the time, Mom, my sister Eileen, and I were of the uncorrected opinion that Dad had months to live. Plus, our cousin Bob had given us holy water from Lourdes, which we began flicking on Dad's chest day and night. He would be on it, back on his feet in no time, we told ourselves. A different nurse popped by on day nine of hospice. Dad was conscious, but barely able to speak. The nurse was in blue scrubs, and she said, he could be like this for six weeks. Six weeks? My sister had to return to work soon. I had more leeway, but I wasn't sure I had six weeks worth. Dad must have heard us worrying about our jobs because he helpfully died the next day. One final computer problem. Dad used four desktop computers and one of them was always broken. He was constantly running over to Radio Shack for parts and in retrospect, that might have been the problem. But it was fitting that the night before Dad died, the computerized machine that was supposed to give him oxygen also malfunctioned. I called the hospice house line and I told one of the angels, my dad can't fucking breathe. They promised to get someone over right away. Now, angels reside in heaven where a thousand years can pass in the blink of an eye. Uh, right away meant that about three hours. As we waited, Eileen and I began a long night that I will never forget. We positioned dad so that he was sitting up. I was sat behind him with my legs wrapped around his hips. I patted his back. His tumor stuck out like tiny footholds on a climbing wall. Eileen sat in front of Dad and her with her finger gently scooped the mucus out of his mouth. As we patted and scooped, we told Dad every single thing we loved about our childhoods. The five Labradors named Pepsi, the Saturday morning trips to the Hyatt Hotel in San Francisco, and the swim team. He teased us about our, his, we teased him about his bolo ties and his Costco shorts his perfect mass attendance record, his secret place near the Oakland airport where we sat in the car and read engineering books waiting for me to land to pick me up from road gigs. Dad's jaw was locking. He said, I love you to Eileen and mom who were facing him. He said it to me too, but I was behind him. Unacceptable. I said, dad, I want to see your eyes when you say I love you. Soon his breathing steadied and we helped him lie down. Dad and I were face to face. He said, I love you with a fixed jaw, barely intelligible. It was the last thing he said to me. Remember, the only breathing machine that should have stopped working that weekend was my dad. <laughs> Sorry, some of these jokes are pretty dark. Uh, <laughs> um, when oncologists say not the results we were hoping for, they mean bye-bye. Are you an oncologist? 
This is a fact. Most of us family members don't know what the hell you're talking about. When you say mass, we think church. When you say invasive malignant tumor, we think our brother-in-law. When you say not the results we were hoping for, trust me, we don't know that means your dad is almost dead. Everyone appreciates clarity. I used to be a competitive swimmer, and at the beginning of each race, the starter explains the event. Swimmers, this is a 400-meter individual medley, two lanes each, a butterfly backstroke, breaststroke, and freestyle. Take your marks. Only after each lap is spelled out in detail does the race begin. This is what doctors need to do with families. Don't assume we know what we're about to dive into. As you escort us out of your office, spell out exactly what's going to happen. Today's the 17th. Your father will probably be dead by the 1st. You have 13 days with him. Take your marks. When you say it in your white coat, it's real. Of course, giving an exact death date is impossible and unwise. You say a month and the person dies the next day. People who bought plane tickets three weeks in advance will be outraged. You say days and he lives months. People who bought full fare plane tickets will be outraged. <laughs> Perhaps you can give some generation-specific metaphors. For Generation X, I suggest using the HBO series The Wire. Every person born from 1964 to 1980 has seen it. Months to live, great news. You and your dad can watch all five seasons of The Wire. <laughs> Weeks to live, you and your dad can still watch The Wire, but skip season two. That's actually great advice for everybody. <laughs> Days to live, don't watch The Wire. Instead, check out this documentary on Netflix called Man on a Wire. It's 94 minutes long, including the credits, which your dad will probably die during. How to give baby boomers their dire prognosis. Take away their Costco card. <laughs> Gently explain that they don't need a year's supply of anything anymore. If they still balk, give them a travel-sized bottle of shampoo and say, this is all the swab you're ever going to need. You're about to go on a trip. As a family member, there are a few oncologists you may end up dealing with. Let's start with the worst. Surgical oncologists. It's time to be honest about surgeons. They are weird, possibly disturbed. Remember that creep in high school who liked popping other people's zits? That's your surgeon. Some medical students get nauseous the first time they have to dissect a cadaver. Surgeons crack their knuckles and say, let me at it. They pass for normal at dinner parties, uh, but never forget that their true passion is cutting up unconscious people. They move human organs this way and that way with their hands, the whole time wishing they didn't have to wear gloves. <laughs> and after they finish their symphony of cutting, snipping, yanking, and sawing, they sew or staple their victim back together. Chilling. Yet after our loved one is operated upon and we're in the most vulnerable of emotional states, who's tasked to give us the bad news? This sociopath who'd rather look at closed eyes instead of into open ones. <laughs> Interacting with families is too much for them. The job should be split in half. Let surgeons chop in peace and then go home to their model train sets. The second half of the job, the telling and explaining, the hand-holding and hugging should go to a therapist. You may need one soon anyway. This is the perfect time to meet. Radiation oncologists. If surgeons were the zip poppers in high school, radiation oncologists were the kids with the zits. After years of having their faces squeezed against their will, they don't want to touch or be touched. So it makes sense that when it's time to treat their patients, radiation oncologists put on a lead suit and do it from an underground bunker three miles away. I never met dad's radiation oncologist, as he or she probably wished. Medical oncologists, the vein pokers, the chemo delivers, the pill providers. Because their patients are mostly conscious during treatments, medical oncologists are very close to being real people. 
too nerdy to sell drugs in high school. They watched pot dealers from afar and thought, there's probably a way to do that professionally without going to jail. Remember, when your surgeon gives you a hug, they're actually searching your back for lumps they can take out. Uh, help, I just saw my father's penis, mother's vagina. I'm sorry, if it's any uh, consolation, your parent is as horrified as you are. No parent wants their genitals seen by their child, especially in hospice, when all body parts are shriveled and sickly. If you're accidentally going to see your parents junk, it should be when they're young and beautiful and fucking each other so hard they didn't hear you knock on the bedroom door. <laughs> Every day of hospice, my number one goal was to care for my dad without seeing his penis. My sister and I held up blankets. We used the buddy system. After transferring dad from the bed to the commode, we'd call in special teams, mom, to do the final wipe and diaper adjustment. I wish I could say goal achieved, but it was not. There's no emoji for that feeling. I take comfort in the fact that it was the only time I saw it, and I hope to never say the phrase dad's penis ever again. I have a picture of me as a newborn with my dad. My parents had a terrible time conceiving, and they only had me after seven years of, quote, according to legend, relentlessly trying. In that picture, dad was a man of the 60s, buzz cut, white shirt, skinny tie, and thrilled that he finally had a baby's butt to wipe. Unaware that 48 years later, that baby would be returning the favor. As our twilight, in our twilight years, we are doomed to be seen at our naked, seen naked at our least attractive. I envy millennials with their dick pics. 50 years from now, they will have hard evidence that they were once gods. If millennials are smart, they'll start checking into nursing homes and putting together photo albums of their best sexting pics to show the grandchildren. I know it's tiny and pink now, but look at it when I was 24 and courting grandma at Coachella. Rest assured, when your dead parent was in the act of conceiving you, their genitals were erect and hard or tight and wet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, morphine, unregulated and in your refrigerator. In America's war on drugs, everything but marijuana is tightly regulated. All right, this is already two years old. <laughs> Until there's a dyer in the house. Then a non-medical professional, such as yourself, will be given vials of an opiate disp to dispense at your discretion. No one's looking, no one's counting. The hospice nurse told us afterwards, let us know if there's any left. She didn't wink, but she didn't have to. We knew what she meant. We aren't tracking it, and we aren't tracking you. The goal is to make your loved one comfortable. It's a wonderful, gentle thing to tell a person that they should feel no pain. For his entire life, Dad was always in some kind of pain with a disciplined eye to the future. Future, working to earn money, being frugal to save money, exercising to be healthy. When hospice started, Dad was done with the future. For the first time in 83 years, his pain did not have to be endured. He didn't have to be tough or strong, responsible, set an example. Dad could be finally comfortable. He never asked for morphine, but he also never turned it down. We quickly learned to offer it to him at regular intervals. He began calling it Morph, and Morph and Dad became fast friends. Dad's, dad on three drops of morphine was like Dad on two boxes of Zinfandel. Goofy, smiling, sleeping. We had one and a half vials left at the time of his death. On Monday afternoon, the hospice, people came for their bed and their drugs. We surrendered the unopened full vial and kept the half vial in the behind the cereal bowls in the kitchen cabinet, as one does. <laughs> Two years later, when it's time to move mom out of the house, the half vial was gone. Mom said, I didn't touch it. And she said, I didn't even know you put it there, which is exactly what I'd expect a stone cold addict to say. <laughs> 
dying people get obsessed with some really weird shit. Uh, they, uh, sorry, that's a chapter title. Dying people can get intensely interested in things they forgot they owned or express little interest in, in, in excuse me, previously in their life. Is it morphine or is it dying? I don't know, but it was actually really fun. One night I was staring into dad's eyes and he into mine. We held hands. He said, you are so handsome. He repeated it several times. I prefer to think he was disoriented and not subtly suggesting that I put on makeup. The sixth night of dad's hospice was silly. Mom and my sister were asleep. I was on night watch sitting next to dad. He woke up and indicated that he wanted something. He said orange. So I brought him an orange. He shook his head no. He kept repeating orange. So I kept bringing him orange things. A prescription pill bottle, no. A dark orange pillow, no. The orange hard drive, no. Neither of us got frustrated. It was a gentle game, a puzzle to solve. I was going to keep bringing things until uh, to him until I got it right. A book with an orange spine, no. A book with an orange stripe, no. A completely orange book, no. It felt like, and it was, our last dance. He indicated that he wanted to sit from the orange thing. I rooted around in the kitchen cabinet and found an orange tumbler, an insignificant thing that wouldn't sell for 25 cents at a garage sale. Bingo. <laughs> Dad wanted water and he wanted to drink it from that orange tumbler. I had so much fun running around the house looking for orange things to show my dad. It felt purposeful and there was a real sense of accomplishment when I figured out what he wanted. I would be happy to be trapped in that night forever. Nazis. Like many dads, mine was obsessed with World War II. He was raised on that war and his older brother Jack served in the Pacific. Dad was uh, regretted that he was too young to fight Nazis. He loved the History Channel. So between that and Netflix documentaries, my sister and I programmed his last days. We quickly learned that he got bursts of energy while watching Hitler's army march across Europe. In fact, during hospice, the two men seemed on parallel trajectories. As Hitler got stronger, so did my dad. And when Hitler began losing battles, so did dad. Um, all right, I'm just going to play a little bit of this music. Um, uh, so in his final days of hospice, his songs increased in their solemnity. Um, this is called Carmina Verona, and the first week we gave him lots of Linda Ronstadt and Vicky Carr, but during the last two days he was conscious, he repeatedly asked for this song, Carmina Verona. It's a dramatic symphony piece. It startled the hell out of me every time it started playing. I guess dad didn't think his dying was dramatic enough and he wanted a soundtrack. The wagon wheel chandelier. An item we never found that dad brought up numerous times was the wagon wheel chandelier. Dad was having a hard time speaking. We loved hearing him say words at all, but the fact that many of them were wagon wheel chandelier was really frustrating. <laughs> he claimed it had been left in the attic by the house's previous owner. Hanging the chandelier had been on dad's to-do list for more than 30 years. It sounded ugly and horrible right up his aesthetic alley. Dad spoke with real regret about the thing that wasn't ours and seemed very hurt that we hadn't heard of it before. Uh, later, when mom moved out of the house, I looked for it. The attic above the family room was full of spiders, but no chandelier. There was an attic over the garage that was hard to get to, and by then I had a storage uh, locker full of dad's stuff. I decided that the wagon wheel chandelier, if it was in that attic, it would stay there for the next homeowner to obsess about in his final days. Yeah. Okay, let me just, uh, um, all right, we'll do like two more, is that okay? Yes. Yeah. 
the obituary, a bad time for writer's block. Why do we let somebody else write the final chapter of our life story? Genuine loved ones will be too upset to do your life justice. It's a catch-22. Anyone who isn't too upset to write your obituary shouldn't be allowed to write your obituary. Your middle name will be wrong. They'll say Navy instead of Army, USC instead of UCLA. There's only one way to solve this problem. Write your own now. If you die tomorrow, those one to six paragraphs are your legacy. This is a great exercise for mid a middle-aged person. If your obit is a little light, you still have time to step it up. Quit that job, divorce that spouse, give up custody of that child. <laughs> Live each day as if it's the last sentence before in lieu of flowers. Or maybe you're the kind of person who can look at three sentences of accomplishment and say, I've done enough. Good for you, society needs more happy, underachieving role models. Quit that job, divorce that spouse, give up custody of that child. High five, you are ready to die. <laughs> Be brutally honest. The trend towards real obituaries has heartbreaking roots, with parents wanting to get the word out about a child's addiction. They are brave and important and awful to read. Uh, but even for the elderly, obituaries are a chance to teach. You don't have to be an addict for the rest of us to learn from your life. Give us some gossip. Most obits are written the way reporters covered JFK in the Oval Office. All the good stuff was left out. Believe me, we want to know if you banged Marilyn Monroe. Don't hold back. Confirm your family's worst fears. Admit your affair. Reiterate that Sophie is your favorite child. This is a great opportunity to help your loved ones miss you less. A lot less. Remember, you are playing to a larger audience. Yes, your immediate family might hate you, but your great-great-grandchildren will think you were cool. This is your legacy. Here's how some old people I've known should have ended their obituaries. Karen died peacefully, surrounded by children she wished she'd never had. Edmund was a friend of Bill W's, and then he wasn't, and then he was, and then he wasn't. Mary passed away at the hospital, surrounded by attendants who needed her bed. Fred died doing what he loved, denying he was too drunk to drive. Jim married his wife Anne in 1975 after impregnating her during what we now call date rape. Anne has been praying for Jim's death ever since, and now she's in Paris. We will never hear from her again. Debbie died in her sleep, surrounded by cats. In lieu of flowers, the family requests that you please take one of these fucking cats. All right, this is the final one. Um, seize your days. The last section is for us people that are still alive. What's <laughs> uh, during chemo? Dad referenced the sprinkler system that he'd never gotten around to putting in the front yard. He sighed and said, that's probably never going to happen, but it would have been fun. Well, we all define fun in our own way. <laughs> the life lesson I took from this offhand comment is to travel. That's my fun. One man's sprinkler system is a, another woman's solo vacation to Japan, or a redwood deck, or an early retirement. The point is, if you think of it, save up for it and do it instantly, ASAP. My dad was from the silent generation. Uh, too old to be boomers, too young to be the greatest. And Silent is right. His hopes and dreams beyond paying the mortgage and keeping us safe were things he kept to himself until the very end. And as his window started to close, he began letting slip all the things he'd meant to do but never did. After they're gone, your loved one's regrets can become your vows. Dad always wanted to see Bryce Canyon in Utah. For 50 years, he lived within a 10-hour drive of it, and he never went. By the time he mentioned his interest in it to us, he was on oxygen and could not have spent time at that altitude. It was just another unchecked item on his bucket list. 
So to honor Dad's memory, I have vowed to bring his ashes to Bryce Canyon. Also, to honor Dad's memory, I have vowed to never get around to it. <laughs> Even though <laughs> it's just an 11-hour drive from my house. Dad would have wanted it that day, that way. Remember, life is short. Install sprinklers. <laughs> so now it's like questions, if people have them. Yeah? I have a question. What did your mom think of the book? Did she read it? <laughs> she, she recently read it, yeah, and she liked it. Yeah, but she's, she said, now everyone's going to think your dad had porn. <laughs> and he didn't, but my, was my, as I was going through all the papers, I was like, oh, God, please, 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 no. Did she bring up the morphine again by any chance? No, she didn't, no. She, well, she claims she doesn't remember that, Yes. <laughs> yeah? I have a serious question. You're a comedian, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking a lot about, we live in this world now where it's always a state of emergency, emergency in the news. Emerge Many Americans lost their home in 2008 or mm -hmm. lost their pensions or lost their old age. Mm -hmm. So we're in such a state of emergency. It always seems like even before this, that satisfaction, yeah. checking off to do this, was really the route to happiness in America. You right. Know, your to-do list and you checked it off and that was cool and and um, a writer Otessa Montefiore actually who's a very serious writer not she's funny too but in a very sad pathetic way mm -hmm. um, she wrote this book that made me start thinking she expressed the fact that we're Americans are after satisfaction we can't even we don't even have a concept of joy yeah and I'm wondering since like you wrote the coolest book on earth on death I mean that is <laughs> like for all of us who I mean you've just really given us a, a, a different way to see you given us a beautiful thing with this oh, book. Oh, thank you. And, um, yeah, and not to be ignored, but back to my morose life and serious question. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm studying Americans, and we've been for a while living this life in pursuit of satisfaction, not joy or happiness. And your book is about joy and happiness, and I mean, that seems to be the underlying message in your book. And so I'm just wondering, for people who aren't dealing with specific, maybe we're all dealing with trauma right now, maybe death is just symbolic of the larger trauma all of us are dealing with, and um, how do we get what the message of your book is, joy, because it seems to be the redeeming moral message of your book, chase joy. And I'm wondering, how do we do that? Um, I mean, your dad had a better world, mm -hmm. so the you know loans for housing and World War emergence and gave him a better America to look at. So maybe the the to-do list was a cool way to live because all the ducks were in a row. Right. But like, because you locked onto this really interesting message with your work, do you have any advice for the rest of us who are just like? <laughs> <laughs> we just how depressed I was just an hour ago. this book? I mean, I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I'm just looking at my own life and and the financial drama going on. I'm writing an economic memoir myself because the financial drama going on from day to day is impossible for me to get any kind of emotional stability in terms of a concept of a future. And I think a lot of Americans are living that way. And I think the head of our government is living with our country that way. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it seems like how do you get joy in those emergency circumstances when you're, like, always on the edge of... I, that's a great question, and I I, I don't have an answer. <laughs> I mean, for for I I, I um I mean our family was like oh I didn't death's coming for me. <laughs> um, that I I um I don't know we just had that we just joked around a lot so that was just kind of the way we were and we just kept it up 
you know, and that was kind of just how we got through all these shocking emotions was to like pin it with a joke and then move on to the next one because they, they just they, they go they come so quickly you know like it's oh my I'm losing him no 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 you're just you're trying to grab it grab this person uh, you know one last time I guess and so for me it was just a that's I don't know that I I don't know that's joyful though but it's it's just my way of stopping time for a little bit I guess it's such beautiful family glue and you know I mean I think. The fact it involves death, and I just think it's such a gorgeous work you've done. Thank, thank you. Thank you for it. Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Could you talk about the significance of the title? How you arrived at that title, and did you consider any other titles? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is—it's the first half of a chapter called "Dead People Suck." Why won't they tell us if there's an afterlife? <laughs> and uh, I think I wanted something. I wanted. Uh, oh, I think I wanted the title "How to Survive Death." Um, but I came at this because my publisher <laughs> made me. Um, <laughs> she's like, no, 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 this is catchier. So I, that wasn't a battle I was willing to fight. I was just glad someone wanted to publish it. Uh, but it's, it's just the first half of one of the chapters. And, I, and my dad, by the way, is not uh, in, you know, coming to me in any way to actually let me know that he still exists. So, <laughs> so if he does, like, I'm pissed. Like, yeah. that's outrageous. Like, you made a promise. Uh, but whatever's happening over there, if there's things happening, maybe they're not allowed, they all take, you know, they're all told instantly, you know, well, we've watched the Alper Books movie, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's where it came from. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a two-parter, maybe, pretty. Um, okay. I'm wondering um, if you had any um, grief support group you know, if you flirted with that at all, like I'm doing that now and I'm not totally sure it's working. I think sometimes it just makes me sadder and more tense. Yeah. And um, the second part is just like to call back to the first question um, because I just finished it yesterday. And um, I'm wondering if your mom had any comments related to the fact that you seem to represent her as maybe your second favorite parent. Um, <laughs> no, she's, she realizes her status in the family. <laughs> I mean, she she's kind of she knows she's really negative, and my she would agree that my dad was the fun one and and was um, the upbeat one. You know, I think she kind of she uh, she leaned into that or into her role. You know, um, so so she she's okay with that. I mean, we told her that all the time. We would joke with, it. yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, and then you had another part. Oh, I was just wondering if you ever attended any groups, or oh, groups, or if I you didn't. found any. You'd be the star if you went. Yeah. Everybody would love you. <laughs> um, I didn't. No, I didn't. I, I guess I, I I already had a thing comedy, so that was like that was where I went with it. You know, I had a thing to do. But if like if I was a painter, maybe I would have been painting it or something like that. Yeah. Yes. What was the genesis of the book? Was it started? Did you decide to write it because of the tweeting that you were doing at the time? Yeah, yeah, and I um, I did a comedy special about it, and then I couldn't sell it, so uh, that was really frustrating. So I decided to write a book instead, and I had a lot of stuff that I felt like was a, you know, a little more heartfelt, which isn't going to work in a stand-up. Um, although I guess it doesn't work now, but I, I didn't think it would work. Um, so uh, I mean, just going by Hannah Gadsby's you know special, but I. I, I <laughs> who's that? Who's that? But I, who's that? She's a stand-up comic. She has a really good special on Netflix. Okay. Check it out, yeah. Um, but it's, okay, it's um, so I, I just had stuff that I thought would be better read than heard in a nightclub where you're competing with drink orders and stuff like that. So that the was special that. special was great, though. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. What's your special fault? 
Uh, it's called dead. Or excuse me, it's called Forty Five Jokes About My Dead Dad. It was it was bought by CISO when they went under, so they own it for like another year. So hopefully we'll be able to unearth it and uh, yeah, okay. thanks. CISO, ABC, NBC, and CISO. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have a question. Nobody else. Okay. So um, so like my friends and I, because we're like somber people, um, we talk about Americans not being able to cope with grief, like it's. Um, depression is, or any kind of natural grieving process is seen as abnormal in American go-go culture and think positive and all mm -hmm. the self-help that's out there. So I'm just wondering, coming from your perspective, um, and I've always felt like a poem, which is really cathartic for me, poetry, nobody reads anymore, but I feel the dynamic is very similar to a good joke. Yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. So could you talk about like the use of, I mean, I don't know why I want to hear you talk, but I do. I want to hear what you have to say about <laughs> depression, <laughs> depression, grieving, everything that you've seen to, um, to um, you know, you've actually transcended all these things. Well, I, I think it just helped me get through it. And um, and so, you know, I still get sad about, I, I have times where I really miss my dad, um, but they, you know, I'm not decimated by it. And uh, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not leveled for the day, and I guess you know writing this and reliving it and remembering everything that was a little bit hard. I had to kind of sort of dip myself back into that wax, but um, uh, I I don't know. Time it's really a cliche, but time really helps out. <laughs> you know, and then you just get used to your family changing, and you just get you know, all right. There's Thanksgiving smaller and whatever. Yes. <laughs> How did your sister who went through all that with you? How did she react to it? Oh, she liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did she see some things or remember some things differently? Or she she or didn't tell. She didn't tell me if she did. Uh -huh. um, she didn't. She I, I she's kind of uh, she didn't read it until it, after it came out. So I was like, look, you know, this is your one chance to uh, stop me. But uh, she <laughs> but she didn't read it till it came out. And I'm still not sure she's read the whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, my sister Eileen? Yeah. No, uh-uh. Um, but she did. Get, uh, she has been on a keto diet for over 400 days, so <laughs> you know she, she's figuring some things out. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> according to her Facebook, I get daily updates on her <laughs> on her keto. So she's she's figuring. She's grieving in her own way. She's <laughs> what's a keto, di what's a keto diet? Uh, I would defer to my sister, but <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's very high protein. I think. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Is your mother afraid you're going to write a book about her? Oh. Um, n n no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I feel, because she in these, I feel very prepared for her death, like way too <laughs> I mentally am rearranging the house, you know, I already know what things I'm giving away, and uh, so, I mean, I'm sure it'll feel different. I know it'll feel different when it actually happens, but um, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I did the bulk of my parental grieving with my dad, and my mom will get a little frosting, but my dad was the main cake. Yeah, yeah. Can you share the story about um, the, the, the neighbor that brought the painting in? Oh my gosh, yeah. There's this, this my dad is actually a, a work friend of my dad's. My dad loved dogs, and he was like the dog park guy. And uh, people just kept visiting and bringing weird stuff. And one of one of my dad's work friends brought this giant painting of a dog to the house. And I was like, Oh my God! What what the hell are we gonna do with this? Like we, my parents' house had so much shit in. I couldn't believe 
this guy would bring something like that to our house. And then, so he, he sits with my dad and they're talking for a little bit and then they, they get up to go and the guy takes the painting. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, he just brought it for my dad to look at, this giant painting. And, and, I, and I spent the whole time being mad at him during his visit and I was like, oh, if I'd known that you actually took this giant thing off your wall and you just brought it, you know, for my dad to see. Pardon? No, it wasn't even a laboratory. It wasn't even a dog I want to look at. It was like a like a poodly kind of dog, you know? Yeah. Maybe I do. I might, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Could you uh, talk about a little bit about the sales process of the book? Did you write a standard book proposal and send it out to agents and publishers? Are you happy with your current publisher? That's what my current publisher also went out of business. I'm terrible. <laughs> it, it was, uh, uh, oh my god, I forgot. It's, um, they are, they're, they're still, in, oh, it's Rodale. They, they still do magazines, but their book division went down, and they were bought by Crown just as my book was coming out, which is the worst time to have a transition. Um, but I had written this other book called Shitty Mom, and it was, it was very short chapters, and it's almost exactly the same structure if you look at them side by side, and I just pitched, I get, Oh, thanks. I just pitched sh Shitty Mom of Grief to the, my editor from that book, and she was at this other company, and, she, and so I wrote a couple chapters, and she's like, yeah, let's do it. So it wasn't a normal book proposal, because she kind of knew me, and the format was pretty, it's like short chapters, 800 words or less, with, you know, as many jokes as possible. Are they uh, providing any of the promotion? I think it's, it's mostly on me. They set up a few book readings, but again, she's gone. Like everyone that's it was involved with it is gone, and uh, the new people. You know, it's like when it, you take over somebody else's um, project, you have no interest in it. So I mean, they, you know, they did their job, but it doesn't feel like you know whatever. But they're fine. There's no spies here, right? <laughs> they have their own, yeah. I appreciate what they did. <laughs> What's your next book idea? Uh, I don't want to ever write a book again. <laughs> but I, maybe I will. I just want to. I just want to not wake up and have to write a book. It's, it's just it ruins every single day for the entire year I wrote it. So it's, it's more fun doing doing a show. Yes, it's way more fun doing. It's, oh, it's less work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The way I do it. <laughs> Other people help me do more work. Yeah. Oh, oh my god. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, there's it, 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 there's stuff where I had a, an emotional attachment and I kept all that stuff. And I'm just at the point where I'm like, I could let go of this one now. You know, uh, I don't need this one anymore. Um, but I, I, not yet. I haven't, got, I, haven't, I haven't done the second stage. But I did keep a lot of my dad's stuff. Um, uh, when he was dying, we actually, or before he, before he was dying, we opened up a, an, Am, uh, an Amazon store and started selling his, his books. He had a bajillion engineering books, and uh, so that kind of helped uh, get rid of a lot of stuff, and he enjoyed, you know, that people wanted to buy his awful, his awful books. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to pick things out. I have a lot of furniture that I, you know, it's, um, really old, and I don't even know if it meant anything to them, like to my grandma. Maybe she, if she was alive, she'd be like, "You fucking kept that couch. It's awful. Why? Did you, but, it, but it was yours, you know." Uh, so, I, uh, so, at some point, there'll be another call, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I just have a quick comment. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, my mom passed less than three months ago. And, oh, uh, sorry. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just I one thing that I really liked um, is your sort of disclaimer up front about where you differentiate between loss and tragedy. Yeah. And really, I think it was just yeah. just it just helped me. I mean, you read from it, right? Yeah. You know, like my 89 year old mom with dementia. It's not. It's a loss, but she didn't want to live for a long time, and it, it's not a tragedy that she passed. You know, right. Her, yeah. Me who's sick now. You know, that's a whole other thing. Definitely. So it, 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 it helped me really. I it just was it's very clear and blunt in a way that really sunk into my noggin, and I oh, that's cool. hear that like that. It's you know. It was yeah. a tragedy that she was sick so long. It, it was, and it's also shocking because you, you know, when you're middle aged, you're like, all right, you know, I, I knew this was happening, and and it's still the emotions are just so overwhelming. You still can't believe it that it would be this painful, even though I was so lucky to have a, a dad that I loved for 48 years. I mean, that's I hit the jack, jackpot, and I was still, you know, it wasn't enough, you know. So, yeah. Will you write about middle aged ladies? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Really? Yeah. Did you? Now, my dad was in hospice right around the right time your dad actually passed. And right. I did try this morphine. Oh, you did? Oh, yes. wow. But it, no, it's just a few drops. And, but it just, it did, it was just numb. It was like almost a cocaine. Not that I took cocaine, but it was <laughs> did, you, did you try it? I didn't. I'm always afraid that I'm going to eat too much if I do any drugs, so I've, I've really not hardly done any drugs, yeah. you know, I don't know, I was, I was never, I, I'm like, when am I going to do it, I have a kid, but there's no, there, I don't have time to like schedule a, a morphine afternoon, and uh, I figured I'll try it, you know, when I'm 80, and it's my turn, <laughs> I'll get to it, <laughs> cool, anybody else? Right. Oh, that's yeah. Is it harder when you were writing the book? You had obviously this and the stuff you're going through. Yes. Is that hard? Yeah. Yeah. That's. I told my publisher. I said this is so much harder than the uh, the mom book because my kid is still alive. And, I mean, he's still he is alive, and it's and it's a you know he's going forward. So I'm catching someone at a certain time in their life and. This is someone who's done, and I had to go back and remember all that grief, and I wasn't, um, I, I'd forgotten. Like, I took a ton of notes, and I started reading stuff, I'm like, oh, yeah, that. And, yeah, it, it, it was way harder to write than the mom book, for sure. Yeah, yeah? How about raising a teenager? That, yep, maybe. Maybe you guys can get together and uh, <laughs> come up with a proposal for that. <laughs> okay, oh, yeah? Yeah, there's a couple chapters in the front that are just for people that are old, you know, and that, that would be interested in reading this kind of stuff. Just about getting rid of a lot of things and you sorting through your stuff first and identifying you know, why this is important to the family and why you kept it. And, you know, I have a bunch of knives that I, I'm, I'm like, I think this is the one he had in Korea. And if he had just, like, made a Bible of, like, you know, these are the things that I have and this is, this is your grandmother's sofa and it's important for this reason or it's not or whatever, I would have really appreciated that. Yeah. So that's the next book, you know, The Death Checklist. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.